We will be reading this morning from Genesis again, chapter 5, and we will be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 32. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. 
After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the, this is the word of the Lord. Quite a passage, huh? What are we going to do with this one today? You hear all those old ages and, and strange, you know, 900 years. I don't know if they were saying, well, 400 is the new 40, you know? I mean, or 500 is the new 50. I don't know. Maybe they were. Well, this week, actually, though, in our staff me- uh, meeting, one of our staff members shared a story about a uh, Christian woman that she knew who was married to her, a husband who was not a follower of Jesus. She had great hopes and desires for this husband, whom she loved and desired him to come to church, would pray for him. And finally, one Sunday, he decided to come to church, and wouldn't you know what the passage was Genesis 5. <laughs> and she thought, great, you know, she thought, oh, he's coming to, to Sunday to hear about a genealogy. I've been wanting him to come. Wouldn't you know it, by the power of God, he was convicted by that passage and by the power of his spirit and repented and accepted Christ as Lord after hearing Genesis 5. There's power in God's word, and all of it matters. He gave us this book. And so whatever is in it, even Genesis 5, is for our edification. So let's explore this genealogy expectantly, because there's actually some great stuff in here. Last week we looked at the fact that two family lines, do you remember? were beginning after the murder of Cain by Abel. And so we looked at the way of Cain, was the first one, a self-reliant way, a self-promoting way, a way that culminated in Lamech, a man of violence and revenge who celebrated even death and revenge and vengeance. He was a picture of, of sin spreading and the degradation of humanity that had taken place since the first sin of Adam and Eve. But there was another way, do you remember? A way of hope. Uh, the new family line of Seth. Remember Eve's faith from last week. I've been appointed a new seed. I've been graced, gifted a new seed from which would come the one to crush the serpent. And Seth fathered Enosh, we ended last week. There was a light in the midst of all that darkness. It's a story of the Bible. These two lines, these two seeds, the way of Cain, the way of Seth, and Cain's line will be at war with Seth's line throughout the history or throughout the story of the Bible. But this morning, we looked last week at Enosh's genealogy, that way, way of Cain. This week we look at Seth's genealogy, and it's clear that they're different. It's different than Cain's, but it's also clear, I think as you heard it read, that the Genesis 3 curse continues to impact and infect both lines, Cain and Seth, and in our day too. How do we know it? We all die. We all die. Nevertheless, God continues to work in this unlikely cursed context by giving us a hint. A hint of the reverse of death and a glimmer of hope for the future of those who walk with God. So this morning we're going to look at, in the midst of this genealogy, three glimmers of hope. Three glimmers of hope. But first what we got to do is we have to understand the unlikely cursed context. So we're going to begin there. Let's start there. Let's look at the genealogy in its pattern and its purpose this morning. And actually, I should have flipped those because we're going to start with purpose and then pattern. So if you want to do that, you can. But what's going on here? Well, first here, let's talk. We have the second section of the book of Genesis. 
that were divided by those words. I remember back from a few weeks back or a month back, actually, the, the told oath sections. Uh, here we have the second one. Genesis 5.1 begins with this, that phrase, this is the book of generations of Adam. It means, do you remember, essentially it means here's a section of the book and it's a family history and here's what happened. Remember our list, this is how the book of Genesis is actually divided into these 10 sections of, really we're saying, well, what became of? What became of the heavens and earth was the first one there. And what became of Adam? We did that in chapter 2 and it ended and starts the new one today. What, what became of Adam? The second one here we see. What became of him? It's a way to break down the book. So we start here as we look at what became of Adam and his family. Is There's purpose in this order. There's purpose in this genealogy to connect for us today Adam to Noah. To connect Adam to Noah. And then after Christmas, we take our Advent break, we're going to come back and connect Noah to Abraham. To see the purpose that God has in these genealogies and list them is to show that God's promise from Genesis 3.15, he will keep, that someone will come from Eve's family that will be the rescuer, that will be the savior. I mean, just look at the list for a minute. Just take a look at it. The list it, connection is from Adam all the way down to number 10 to Jacob. Who came from Jacob? Do you remember? His name was changed to Israel. The 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel in Egypt connecting us to Moses, and then we're off and running to the New Testament. When you get to the New Testament, who comes from the tribe of Judah? One of these sons of Jacob. Jesus. Jesus. It's the connection from the garden all the way to the cross. It's the purpose of these family genealogies. It's staggering. God makes a promise and is able to keep it over millennia and over generations. How long can you guarantee a promise? <laughs> I mean, it, it, only your lifespan, really, if, even if you're really good at keeping promises. God keeps it over millennia and generations. And if that's the fact, if that's the truth, isn't he also able to call out his church today and to redeem us, even though our context today looks just as unlikely as it did in their day? He is, as we've sung those words, he is able so you see, there's a purpose in these lists. They connect us from Adam to Noah to Abraham to, uh, to Jacob to Judah to the New Testament all the way back to God's keeping that promise in Genesis 3.15. Well, in our list today, we've got a pattern. A pattern, and you heard it repeated as it was read, a pattern of 10 sections, or commentators call them panels, 10 sections from Adam to Noah. And for the most part, as you heard it read, there's a monotony in it. It's intended to be. There's a monotony. It's repeated. And in most of the patterns, it sounds and looks like this. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 920, uh, 912 years, and he died. Basically, the pattern is this. He lived, he had a son, he had other kids, then he died. And on the one hand, there's great optimism. Seth and his offspring produce potentially hundreds or thousands of people to whom they pass on God's image, which we'll look at again in a minute. And there's lots of people. There's promise. There's hope. And they're living on the earth. And they're passing on God's image. And they're living a long time. Did you hear that? Methuselah the longest. 
I mean, and really, nobody really knows quite why at this point humans still live so long. Maybe it was time to populate the earth. Maybe sin was slowly deteriorating biological breakdown and it hadn't quite gained. Maybe it was even the effects of uh, eating the tree of life had to wear off in people. And so they lived a long time. We don't quite really know. But I do think what we're meant to see is to take this literally. That for some reason, at the early points of history, God allowed people to live for a very long time. And in that, there was a bright hope. Because they lived long and had many children and they passed on God's image and they created cultures we saw last week. And yet, in this unlikely context, it is still cursed because what happens to Adam? Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. I mean, can't you hear in that verse the words of the serpent ringing in your ears? You shall not surely die. Remember the tree? You shall not surely die. And here, Adam dies. It was not God's original intent. His intent was for us to live forever with him in the garden with the tree of life there. So let's take a look at this unlikely cursed context because it's clear that this is the dominant theme of this passage. We have to see this dark context before the glimmers of hope really shine. And it's this, the dark cloud before the glimmer of hope is that death reigns here. Death reigns in this passage. It's the predominant theme. And he died, is said, eight times in this chapter. And even if it wasn't immediate death in the garden, it happened. The real man, Adam, breathed his last breath on earth. This is what impacted, uh, this is what impacted that woman's husband the first time she came to church that morning. As he heard this passage read, the inevitability of death. It's the great equalizer. Kings and criminals, right? All die the same. Even if Methuselah lived, think about this, 31 years short of a millennium, he still died. He still died. Think of these early chapters in Genesis as we've been going through. We have the first murder, Cain and Abel. We have Lamech murdering and and celebrating. And in in chapter 6 and 7, we're going to see all of humanity die, except for Noah and his family. This is just the curse of humanity taking its grip. Death is taking its grip on people. And you know, if you think about it, it is something, it is a topic we avoid talking about at all costs in our contemporary culture today. We like to watch it happen to someone else in our entertainment, but we don't really like to talk about it. Or even our own death. It makes us uncomfortable at many times. And that takes many forms. Whether it's the challenge you have of getting your aging parents to think about transitioning to more care, shows up there. Whether it's your, your own stubbornness to go to the doctor, it's some of you have, I know. Or maybe even nightmares you may have. As Mike Mason said, it's kind of like this. We think about when we become aware of death and the reality of it, it's like the unfolding of a murder mystery in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim. It's kind of stark, isn't it? Kind of sobering. Or you heard somebody tell the joke, life is the joke and death is the punchline. 
I mean, it's, it's the reality of chapter 5. It's a do- predominant theme. And my guess is, my guess is that even at 930, Adam pined for his youth. Think about that. Or expressed the speed at which it came. Even at 930, like 930 years, where did it all go? <laughs> where did it all go? i got to believe that. I mean, think about it. In a generation or two, after I die, no one living will remember me or anything I ever did, probably. That's kind of sobering. And the reality that is, for most of us, most of us don't make the history books. Most of us will go past, and, and then after a generation or two, be forgotten. These genealogies show us that generation after generation of image bearers have been born with so much life, so much potential, so much ability to know God and pass on his image, and yet they're all gone. They're all gone. The cycle goes on, and she died, and, and he died, our text says. But by setting this unlikely, cursed context that God is going to work in, and we are starting kind of dark this morning, and we have to because the passage repeats it over and over and over again, we're reminded that when we see these glimmers of hope, they're going to shine that much more brightly. So let's see them. Let's see these three glimmers of hope that break from the cycle of death. Here's the first one. It's just a quick reminder at the beginning of the passage. The created being still image God and receive his blessing. The first glimmer comes at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 and 2, where in stark contrast to all this death, we're reminded that humans are made in God's image and still blessed by them. Even though the image is marred, we know that. It's there, but it's marred. It still remains and it's passed down from parents to children. As verse 3 says, Seth was born in the image of Adam. So in spite of all that's gone wrong early in the history of the world, we still image God and can live under his blessing. You can. I can. We're unlike any other created thing. Only humans can mirror back God. Only humans can image God to the world. Only humans can hear him in a personal, intimate way and have the potential to have that that relationship restored and that image repaired in us. And that's how the church is to image God to the world in the New Testament era. It's by showing Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another, from another degree of glory to another, from this comes from whom the Lord, who is the Spirit. We image Christ's glory to the world. Animals can't do that. A tree can't even do that. Yes, it points to God, but it doesn't image in the way humanity can. And so while that image is broken in us and marred, God is putting it back together. I mean, it's kind of like that simple nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty, right? He fell off the wall, and and all the king's horses, all the king's man after he shattered, couldn't put him back together again. But when a broken image bearer turns back to God and Jesus Christ in faith, the true Lord, we begin to shine. We begin to get put back together. We begin to, uh, uh, to image him from one degree of glory to another. 
That's what he's doing. Let's look at an example. Here's an example of that, that degree of glory from one uh, uh, to another. You know, we talked about the fact that we fear death. And yet, in some of our elderly followers of Jesus, you've maybe seen this. When they reach old age, they don't fear it the same way. They don't fear it like they did maybe when it was decades off. They seem ready. You ever met a, a saint like this, somebody that follows the Lord? They just seem ready. They seem secure. They seem almost anticipating, almost looking forward to it because they know death isn't the end. In a way that's real, almost palpable. Degree by degree, they're being turned into a trusting image bearer. I had a hospice uh, nurse who was a friend of mine uh, one time who had watched hundreds of people die. And she once told me, those that she knew when they passed away who were Christians, when they died, she said generally now, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but she said generally they tended to die peaceful and actually with their eyes closed. Generally now. And she said those who I knew, because I knew the family and I spent a lot of time with them, I knew they weren't a follower of Christ. When they died, she said many times, they had a look of terror on their face and their eyes remained open. Now, that doesn't mean that's a general, generality. It doesn't mean that there's an assurance of salvation or an uncertainty in how the face of your loved one looked at death. Don't hear that. But would we, would we be surprised to generally find that those who have peace with God generally die a more peaceful death on earth? It wouldn't be surprising. They're imaging him by trusting and being changed degree by degree so that when they are closer to the end of their life, they almost seem to be more ready for it in a sense and certain of what's on the other side of that death as they trust degree by degree. Just an example. Well, that first glimmer is that we still image God and we still are blessed by him when we live in relationship with him. But then we come to the second one and we get this amazing break in the monotony of this genealogy and the pattern. A break that really it's as perplexing as it is wonderful. Take a look at chapter 5, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. We're calling this second glimmer of hope the interruption of victory over death. It's a great interruption of victory over death. Now, while Lamech, you remember from Cain's line, is the, he's the seventh down the line, the genealogy from Cain, and he turned out to be a man who worshipped his sword and revenge. Enoch is the seventh down the line from Adam, a man who walks with God. And rather than a proud, boastful man like Lamech, in Enoch we have a man of humble faith. And while all the others mentioned in the list, in the pattern, it says they lived and fathered is the language, Enoch says he didn't just live, he walked with God. For 300 years it looks like the way the verse is read. 
maybe at 65, he came to know the, the Lord in faith and walked with him for 300 years, which is really only said in that particular way of only one other person in the Bible, in this specific language. It's Noah. We're going to see it in chapter 6 uh, in January, chapter 6, verse 9. And, and while they all died, the pattern says, Enoch was taken by God and didn't die because he was taken, possibly like Elijah the prophet was. We have a glimpse here that death isn't the end. Death is not the end. Death is not the final victor. Here is one, Enoch, who was transported to heaven, presumably without experiencing or tasting death. The only other people who are really going to do that are those who are alive when Christ returns. It's not very often. It didn't happen much in the Bible. But here it does. We are to be given hope by Enoch's transportation that death isn't the end of life. It's not the end. Death doesn't get the final say, the final word in God's world as we see in the life of Enoch, as he's transported to heaven. Hebrews gives us a little more insight. This is the only place we really see Enoch and then Hebrews and Jude. He's not, we don't know anything really about his life even, except Hebrews gives us a little more. Hebrews gives us some insight as Enoch is mentioned in what many call the great uh, hall of faith where a bunch of Old Testament saints and some New Testament are listed. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Maybe they sent out a search party. I don't know, but they didn't find him. He was not found. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then the writer goes on. How did he please him? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is only one way to please God. As we see in Enoch's life in the Old Testament, how did Enoch do it? The only way is faith. That is what pleases God. That is the only way to please God. I mean, even obedience to God, which Enoch was, even obedience to God without, uh, uh, can be actually not pleasing to God if it's done without faith. You can be an obedient person and look really good on the outside and be a person who doesn't walk with God and doesn't please Him. It's faith. But you cannot be a person who pleases him without faith. You cannot. Without faith, it's impossible, the writer of Hebrews says, to please God. And so Enoch, if he pleased God, we must assume because the writer of Hebrews, what pleased him was his faith and how he lived that faith out. And so Enoch, by his faith, pleased God by believing in him, the writer of Hebrews says, and that he would be rewarded by seeking God, by living in fellowship with him. And his faithful life, this life of Enoch, this life of belief that we see, is described for us as this way, as walking with God. This is an interesting phrase. Walking with God. And I believe that it's to be a model for us. As the writer of Hebrews brings it back again. So let's look at it. Here's how we're going to define it. Of, as walking with God. A faithful life of walking with God in friendship, direction, and desire brings blessing. 
there's a rich intimacy, I think, that we are, to, are supposed to understand in the description of God and Enoch walking together. Imagery that we heard might, might take your mind back to the garden even, when God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day looking for Adam. Do you remember that? Looking for Adam after he had sinned. And where was he? He's hiding, remember? Well, here again we have someone walking with God. Now, what are we supposed to make of this? What are we supposed to make of this walking with God? Let me tell you. Well, unlike Cain or Lamech, who were concerned with themselves and, and building a reputation and a name, here we have a man in, in Enoch who's concerned with intimacy with God and who God is. He's not so self-obsessed. He's concerned with God and concerned with his relationship with God. And to walk with, side by side with someone, what does that imply? Our first word there, friendship. It implies a, a friendship. We walk with those we want to have company with, don't we? You walk with those you want to be around, in other words. How many times I've been at the grocery store or out somewhere, and you see a couple walking, and they're not side by side. One is maybe 20 paces out ahead, uh, or, and one is you know, really far behind. Maybe it's just because one's faster than the other. But a lot of times, you can sort of sense something else is going on there. Or maybe that one is just indifferent to the presence, uh, the presence of the other, and they're just sort of walking almost as two individuals, even though they're in the same proximity of space. You could sense the tension as one walks away, just leaving the other behind. You've seen that at a store, at a shop, maybe in a park. There's a division. There's a separation there. A loss of friendship, maybe. A loss of fellowship in that couple. I don't know. Or to put it the other way, why does a bride walk down the aisle side by side with her father and back down with her husband? It's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of friendship. It's a picture of love. It's a picture of, of, of closeness. Do you realize that friendship with God is available in this picture of Enoch walking? I admit, we, we even talked about this in our men's group this week in our Tozer book. He talked about the love of God leading to friendship with God. I admit, it's hard to think in those terms. And sometimes in humility, we might not even think it's right. Friendship with God? That sounds a little too buddy-buddy. A little too familiar with a holy God? But God is the one who initiated friendship with us. You realize that? It's his idea. It's not ours. It's his idea. He initiated friendship with his Old Testament people even. Enoch, Noah. And think about this. Jesus literally took on a body to walk amongst us. To walk next to his disciples. He walked with us and called us friends. Take a look at John 15. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants. The servant does not know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends. Friends, for all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. It's the intimacy of Jesus' love, of God's love that, that casts out fear and removes our barrier of sin, which allows us to get into a close enough proximity to walk with God. But it's more than just a proximity. It's more than just closeness in space 
It's also our direction and desire of our life too. Jesus said in this verse, you are my friends because I've made known to you what I'm all about, what I'm interested in, what I love, what is truth. I've made known it to you and because of that, you're my friend. It's, It's desire and direction of life too. The friendship was built with the disciples by knowing who God is through Jesus Christ. So it's got to be more than just a closeness and proximity. It's direction and desire too. We don't work against our friends, right? The description of that is we we go together. We paddle the same direction, don't we, with a friend, not against them. We come alongside them. We lift them up. We walk arm in arm, hand in hand, arm around the shoulder, all the uh, imagery for us. But not only that, we take them into consideration when we make decisions about our life, if it's a good friend, or the direction of our life. What's that look like? Here's an example from my own life. In taking desire and direction, in in consideration of a friend, my own desires. When I was first dating Robin, who is from Canada, uh, I I had a tendency, it was my lack of insecurity, wanting to seem like a funny guy when I was dating her, I don't know, but I would tease her and poke fun at her by making jokes about Canada, like many Americans do. And she would tell me, please don't. That actually really bugs me. And you know, as an ignorant guy dating a, a girl, I still did it a few more times. <laughs> <laughs> but as we grew in friendship and love and intimacy, I began to realize, oh, that actually hurts her. And I began to think, about, I mean, I wouldn't like it if someone made a joke about my own nation. And so my desire and direction, what did it do? It began to line up with hers because she was my friend and I loved her. I didn't want to paddle and work against her. I wanted to go with her in direction of life. And hopefully she can't remember the last time I made a Canadian joke. I hope that's in her mind. (laughs) I hope. I think it's been a, a, I think I've learned that. To walk with God is to live your life in such a way that your desires and the direction, your words, your loves, your hopes, your dreams all take this most important friend, God, who made you into utmost consideration. That's what it means. Do you walk with God like this? Or is he more in your life like an add-on? An app you open from time to time for convenience or when it serves you? Or are you serving your friend, God, as you walk with Him? It means that we can make real sinful choices in our life that hurt God, that go against His desires, that go against His direction. When we walk the way of Cain, when we go the way of Cain, it hurts our friend, God. Here's how Marcus Dodds described it. I love how he described it. Walking with God is a persistent endeavor to hold all our life, all of it, open to God's inspection and in conformity to His will. It's a readiness to give up what we find does cause any misunderstanding between us and God like you would with a good friend. A feeling of loneliness if we've not some satisfaction in our efforts of holding fellowship with God. 
maybe even a cold and desolate feeling when we're conscious, conscious of doing something that displeases Him. This walking with God necessarily tells, it's telling on our whole life and character. It's an intimacy, isn't it? But not just in proximity, but in love and faith and desire and direction of life. And here's the interesting thing. We do this walk together. We do this walk together. If your mind, the entire time I've been picturing, talking about this, has just been picturing you and Jesus walking together, you have the wrong mental picture. You have the wrong mental picture. The picture for us we're going to see in the New Testament is this, a church that eagerly awaits for Jesus while we walk together. While we walk together. Now, of course, your personal faith absolutely brings you into relationship with Jesus and friendship with God. Nobody can believe for you. But we walk together. Our walk is together. This is why your fellowship here, your friendships here, your attendance here, your life group here, your one-on-one relationships here, this is why they're so important. Who is walking with you? Who's walking with you? Are you so independent maybe that you look back and you kind of go, who's here with me? Or you, you feel it most maybe when you get out in the road of life and crisis comes and you go, where is everyone? We were built not to walk with God alone, but in relationships with each other in his church. Question, who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? Who's walking alongside you? Who's pouring into your life? Who's challenging you? Who's encouraging you with words of faith and encouragement? Who's walking arm in arm with you down the spiritual aisle of your life? Who is it? Helping you shape your friendship and your direction and your desires to God's. We don't walk it alone. What a beautiful glimmer of hope in Enoch, isn't it? A man who walked with God, and you and I can too, in Jesus Christ. Let's look at our final one. Our final glimmer of hope is this. The birth of a new child brings the hope of relief. We've got a new child here who's born onto the scene, and he brings this hope, a hope of relief for his father. We've got another Lamech. Did you catch that? Another Lamech. But the two couldn't be more different, could they? One entirely different from Cain's way is hoping for relief from the curse. We need, we need relief. Look at 28, chapter 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. We know that name, don't we? The rest of you might be like, I have no idea who those are. You know the name Noah, probably. And, and his father Lamech said, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. We're introduced to Noah here and his father's hope. His father's hope that this baby, this baby would bring relief. Have you ever noticed in the Bible 
how over and over again, not just here, over, Eve already did it too. Over and over again, there is hope placed on the birth of a new child. You ever catch that? And many times it's to women who thought they could never bear a child. Actually, multiple times in the Bible, women who thought they were barren. Hope in unlikely places with unlikely people is how God works. And here we have a father again who's hopeful in the birth of a new child. My kids just watched Lion King for the first time. An old movie. The songs came back to my wife and I like, oh, it's like I heard that yesterday. I just watched it for the first time. And you all probably know the scene, whether you've seen the movie or not. I'm sure a lot of you have. The new baby lion is born. Remember that scene? And Rafiki, the monkey, ascends to the precipice of the rock. And what does he do? He holds up the newborn baby lion as if to say, all our hopes, all our dreams and desires and the future direction is placed on this one. In the moment, you probably remember the scene, the sun breaks through, the clouds part, the animals actually even, what do they do? Bow down. I mean, Disney knows it. <laughs> At the center of every human heart, of every life, is the hope that someone will come along and make things right. They know it. You know it. It's why Lion King gets you, and it's so dramatic, and then boom, it goes to, fades to black in that first scene. You remember that? That someone will come along to reverse the curse, the hope of every human heart. That's why every Disney movie kind of follows that pattern. It's the one ultimate true story. Do you remember? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Every human heart knows it, wants it, whether they know it or not. And Disney knows it makes money. So they do it. They keep repeating it. That someone will come along and reverse the curse. That someone will come along and walk down the aisle with us. Don't you want that? Well, here Lamech holds up his newborn son, so to speak, with the hopes that he'll possibly bring relief from the curse that Genesis 3.15 talked about. And God does use Noah to bring relief to the world, but in a way different way Lamech was thinking. By ridding it of the constant way of Cain living, of evil. We know the flood. We're going to talk about it in January. Which is not the way Lamech was thinking, though. But what a great place for us to take our break in Genesis. As we begin Advent next week. Because who's the baby that God held up? Who is the baby that God held up? Who is the child upon which all the hopes and dreams and saving of the world would be placed? who did finally undo the curse of sin and death and make eternal life a reality. Christ. Jesus Christ. It's a perfect place for us to take this break because Noah, as we're going to see in January, doesn't quite deliver the way maybe Lamech was hoping. We couldn't walk with God. The curse was too strong so God had to come walk with us in Jesus. That's what Advent's about. That's what we're going to be talking about starting with next week. I hope you come back. And when you come to this one Jesus by faith, you come to God the Father through him, and then he will walk with you. And you will be blessed. And you will overcome death in your resurrection. It's about Canada.
like many Americans do from time to time. And she would tell me, like, please don't. That, that really kind of bugs me. And as an ignorant kind of early dating, I still did it a few more times. But as we grew in friendship and love and intimacy, I began to realize that my friend, who was to be my wife soon, I began to realize this actually hurts her. This actually hurts her. And I, th- and I thought about it from my own perspective. Yeah, I wouldn't like it if somebody made fun of my nation either. And so what happened? My desire, my direction, the course of my relationship with her began to line up with hers. Because I didn't want to hurt her. I loved her. And hopefully, I hope, she can't remember the last time I ever told a candid joke. I think we're that far maybe now in our marriage, I hope. But here's the, th- here's the image. To walk with God is to live your life in such a way that the desires and the directions, your words, your loves, your hopes, your dreams, they all take this important friend who made you into utmost consideration. That's what walking with God is. Same direction, same desires, same heart. Do you walk with God like that? Daily. Or is he more for you, maybe like an add-on or an app that you open from time to time on your phone when it's useful or convenient and when it serves you? Or are you serving your friend? Your friend, God. It's, it's, it, it's a really interesting thought, but that, that means if he is our friend and we're connected at heart level, we can make real sinful choices that hurt God, that paddle against him, that go in the opposite direction of him that go against his desires and his direction for the world and for the course of our, his desire for our life. When we go the way of Cain, it hurts our friend. We saw it play out in Cain and Lamech's life. When we go the way of Cain, it hurts God. I love how Marcus Dodds described this idea of walking with God. He said, walking with God, it's a persistent endeavor. It's a walk. It's step by step, day by day, to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. It's also a readiness to give up what we find does cause any misunderstanding between us and God. It's a feeling of loneliness if we've not some satisfaction in our efforts of holding that fellowship with God. It's a cold and desolate feeling when we're conscious of doing something that displeases 